the Bear Sitters of Boulder, Colorado. There was also this group of volunteers called the Boulder Bear Sitters who basically would sign up to stake out underneath one of these trees because the bears would often, you know, they'd, they'd eat their meal and they'd fall asleep, you know, much again like humans do. And they'd be up in the trees and these volunteers would come in, they'd have a lawn chair, they'd have a whistle, some pots and pans, and their job was to try and keep curious people away from the bears prevent you know as much as they're cute and cuddly and fun they can also of course attack people so their goal was to try and prevent people from getting too close to the bears so that the bears could at nighttime come down the tree and safely return to the mountains that's gloria dickey we talk with her about bears and how people relate to them for good and for ill her book is eight bears mythic past and imperiled future Then we talk about another iconic imperiled species, wolves. Sonia Swift tells us about her book, Echo Loba, Loba Echo, of wisdom, wolves, and women. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Well, it's official. The winner of Fat Bear Week is Bear 128 Grazer, topping 32 Chunk to become the 2023 champion. She packed in enough salmon to pack on enough pounds for winter hibernation. But as we learn in our conversation with Gloria Dickey, Hibernation is falling out of style with at least some bears. Winters are warming and the pickings are so good in some towns like Lake Tahoe, California, that the local bears don't have to hibernate anymore. That can spell trouble for humans and bears. As bear-human encounters increase, the health of the world's bears depends on how people manage their interactions with them. Gloria Dickey's book, Eight Bears, tells us about conservation success stories for some bear species, as well as threats of extinction to most of the others. Weaving together ecology, history, mythology, and accounts of her travels and observations, Dickey offers a closer look at our volatile relationship with these magnificent animals. Gloria Dickey is an award-winning journalist and is currently a global climate and environment correspondent at Reuters. Gloria Dickey, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you so much for having me. So this book, Eight Bears, uh, first I want to compliment you. It was such an engaging read, and I learned so much about bears that I had never heard of as well as bears that I have heard of. So it's a terrific book. Thank you. Yeah, most people are kind of surprised to hear there are only eight bears, but then they can only ever name like four of them. So, Eight bears. The four that most people probably know of is black bears, brown bears, grizzlies, and polar. What are the other four bears? Uh, Well, a a brief correction. So grizzly bears are actually a subspecies of brown bear. So the panda is the other one that comes to mind. Those are kind of the four known bears but then we have the moon bear and the sun bear which live in asia the sloth bear which is native to the indian subcontinent and the spectacle bear which is the only bear species that's left in south america and 
there were never that many species of bears as compared to, say, cats or dogs, right? Yeah, I think, you know, people are kind of, when they see the title of the book, they're like, you know, how many bear species have we lost? Like, have we lost thousands? You know, and this is kind of this conservation crisis. That's not so much the case. Like, we, we did have more bear species at one time, but because, you know, typically with really large animals, you don't see perhaps as high of like a species diversity because they take up so much space. So there were more bears in South America, um, brown bears ranged, you know, into North Africa and down into Mexico. And we saw bigger ranges for some of these bears, but yeah, compared to cats or compared to dogs, you know, it's, it's not quite at that same level. So the subtitle is mythic past and imperiled future. So you talk about bears in our lore um, and the human imagination you say that humans have a special relationship to bears. Tell, talk about that. Yeah, I think like when some people see this book, you know, it, they're thinking, oh, it's like a book that's like on the biology of bears or, you know, specifically how bears are in their kind of wild natural environment. But for me, I really wanted to explore that complex human relationship with bears because they are so present in, you know, our stories from indigenous mythologies, which kind of position the bear as being, you know, part human or a shapeshifter between man and bear, um, to stories from, you know, Aristotle and Pliny the Elder who would talk about bears. There's such a strong iconography in North America and Europe when it comes to the bear. And most people are probably most familiar with, of course, the the teddy bear and some of the folk tales that we tell about bears as well. Yeah, and you you talk about the the myth of Goldilocks and the three bears, and you make such an interesting point that it is Goldilocks who is the interloper, not as in the case of let's say the big bad wolf that you know the wolf is the thing to fear for Little Red Riding Hood. So. That gets to that special relationship. And I wonder if you could kind of underscore that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what always interested me was especially traveling and reporting across the American West was was that kind of split between how people viewed wolves and how people viewed bears. And I kind of wonder to what extent is it these stories that we tell and these these cultural anchors that dictates how we feel about these these different animals. Because on the one hand, wolves you know they kill livestock they kill cattle but wolves don't really kill people whereas a bear does and yet we're a bit more lenient towards grizzly bears than we are towards towards wolves and so i think it's really interesting to look at the stories like again with goldilocks there are no villainous bears that i could come across in any of these stories but then also why why do we tell stories where the bear is kind of the you know protagonist and the human is the antagonist and Something that I think is also kind of unique about bears and perhaps why we've written them into stories that way is because they're such behaviorally complex animals and they have this curiosity about them that I think, you know, kind of strict predators like wolves and big cats maybe don't have. Like they're very playful, you know, they kind of mirror our own, our own you know, penchant for getting into things and getting into trouble at times that I think really speaks to the human spirit. Um, and I do wonder if that's why we've written them as we have and why we relate to them a bit differently. Yes. Uh, as I was reading this book, I, I went online and, and, and watched, as is my want, videos of, of bears. Well, usually I do animal videos, you know, when I when I want to feel better. And there are all these videos of bears playing in, on trampolines and in people's pools and the charm that people felt as they watched them playing. And I thought of what you just said, you know, that they're so playful and smart. 
Yeah, I love I love those videos. That I mean, those videos got me through the book writing process and the pandemic. So, I totally relate. And yeah, they're, they, yeah, exactly. The intelligence aspect. I think that was really fascinating to me because I didn't know too much about kind of I guess earth sign intelligence headed into this book. And I started speaking with researchers and looking at you know some of the the scientific papers that exist on this. And yeah, I mean, you know, in some in some tests, they've they've kind of outdone gorillas, which I think is, you know, that that's fantastic. And um, yeah, they're also just really persistent when it comes to, you know, getting into things and finding food, other animals might give up, but the bears keep going at it. And um, yeah, they use tools. There's lots of really interesting, brilliant inventions they've, they've used. <laughs> but therein lies the rub, actually, because this book, Eight Bears, is very much about the, about the human wildlife interface and conflict between humans and bears. Yeah. Yeah. And and in fact, you talk about the wooey, the wild urban interface, which is, of course, so much of where these conflicts come up. I mean, not exclusively. There are some conflicts that come around uh, wild spaces as well. One community you examine is Boulder, Colorado. Talk about the situation there and also about the Boulder bear sitters. This book really began in Boulder. So I had moved to Boulder back almost a decade ago um, to do my master's. And when I got there, there were all of these bears coming into town. You know, people were kind of up in arms. Colorado Wildlife, Parks and Wildlife, you know, the managers were kind of killing bears that kept returning to town. You know, they'd come in. Boulder is just on kind of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So the bears would come down, you know, they'd, they'd be eating apples, they'd be eating people's garbage. And, you know, they'd fall asleep in trees. And so there was there was a push to try and get the city to introduce an ordinance that would require people to use bear-proof or bear-resistant garbage bins to try and prevent these conflicts. And that was kind of like the first kernel for this book. And it ended up being my, my master's project as well, was looking at, you know, Boulder was the first city of its size to try and do something like this in in North America. Typically, you only kind of saw that happening in like national parks with like bear-resistant garbage bins. And so that, while that effort was underway, there was also this group of volunteers called the Boulder Bear Sitters, who basically would sign up to stake out underneath one of these trees, because the bears would often, you know, they'd, they'd eat their meal and they'd fall asleep, you know, much again, like humans do. And they'd be up in the trees and these volunteers would come in, they'd have a lawn chair, they'd have a whistle, some pots and pans, and their job was to try and keep curious people away from the bears prevent you know as much as they're cute and cuddly and fun they can also of course attack people so their goal was to try and prevent people from getting too close to the bears so that the bears could at nighttime come down the tree and safely return to the mountains i just find that so charming and, and we don't we don't have uh, wolf sitters <laughs> I've never, I've never heard of any anywhere else that does something like this. I mean, maybe I'm not, maybe there are other countries have similar kinds of um, projects, but I just thought it was so quirky and unique. And you know, of course, the kind of people who are attracted to this kind of job were also often quite interesting. And you talk about a new breed, the urban bear, which is not hibernating anymore. So talk about how bears are actually adapting to human encroachment on their habitat. So bears typically will go down into hibernation, you know, around November, December, and it's typically when the natural food sources, you know, fruits and berries and nuts become less available. So they're kind of going into a den for the winter to preserve their energy. You know, hibernation is a very kind of unique biological process. And then they emerge 
typically March, April, depending on where you are, when the food's coming back and they typically come back with their cubs as well. But because we've seen human food available year round now, the bears aren't going hungry, right? They can just stay up all winter long, keep eating. The winters are a bit warmer. There's maybe less snow. So it's that kind of double whammy between human food availability, you know, in these mountain towns or in that wildland urban interface, like with Boulder, uh, as well as warmer temperatures and climate change. So in some cases, like around Lake Tahoe, scientists have actually observed that some bears aren't really hibernating at all anymore. Instead, they're finding these day beds under porches. You know, they're kind of napping, but then they go out and they eat garbage cans or they break into bakeries or gas stations, what have you, and keep eating. And that's profoundly changed, you know, bear behavior. And, and as I've said, given rise to this kind of urban bear. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Gloria Dickey about bears. Her book is Eight Bears, Mythic Past, and Imperiled Future. You also talk a lot about grizzlies, and I I remember going to Yellowstone Park. In fact, one year that I went there, I believe there were two or possibly three bear attacks, some of which were fatal, And, you know, I brought my little bear bells along as I went hiking because I was hiking alone, so I was especially concerned. But the grizzlies are so important. Talk about, well, all bears are important, so I don't want to play favorites. (laughs) But there's been particularly controversy and conflict, not just between grizzlies and people, but between people and people over the grizzlies and over the Endangered Species Act. So lay that out for us. Sure. And yeah, I mean, that's a good point. We just, as you might have seen, we just had someone killed by a grizzly bear near Yellowstone a few weeks ago, who was a jogger who was running through the forest alone. But yeah, so essentially, we saw the grizzly bear in the lower 48 states, basically, you know, near local extinction back in the 1970s. And at that point, the grizzly bear, again, in the lower 48, it's doing pretty well in Alaska, was protected under the Endangered Species Act uh, to try and keep it from, you know, going past, going off the cliff. And people didn't really think it would work at first. You know, how do you conserve this large predator that can and does kill people? But against the odds, we did see a really beautiful conservation story unfold. And the grizzly is now just under around 2,000 individuals, it's thought, um, kind of between Yellowstone and Glacier and and the Western states. But the issue that we're now seeing is that the government has for many years wanted to remove federal protections from grizzly bears, especially as they wander further outside of the confines of Yellowstone and Glacier National Parks. They're attacking cattle. They're attacking people at times. And it's kind of become this really hot button issue between kind of left and right politics, especially in states like Montana. We saw a proposed trophy hunt at one point for Yellowstone's grizzly bears that ended up being kind of canned at the last minute. As it stands, the grizzly bears are still protected under the ESA. But again, the government is reviewing whether or not to remove federal protections and you know, at the time I had some scientists say to me, you know, the the ESA, the, the goal is to get species recovered and removed from the act. And the grizzly bear has been a tremendous success story. It's the iconic species of the act. We want to remove it. But some of those scientists have moved backwards on that statement now. And they're saying, actually, with the way politics are going, the kind of anti-predator sentiment in local legislatures, 
they should probably remain protected because we might kill them all. Yeah, I mean, and it always puzzles me. I mean, if, if you remove an animal from the Endangered Species Act, okay, I get that, but then you have no other kinds of controls because it just seems to be it could just go to another extinction event. Why doesn't the Endangered Species Act incorporate some step-downs you know, a sense of the based on science on how many of these animals really are necessary in order to preserve the population. Ideally, there should be kind of a transition guidance on that when the states take over management. And, you know, I think the, the federal government did try to implement something like that. But at the end of the day, they don't have that much authority on enforcing it. So I think especially with the way that politics are right now in the U.S., it's, it's become this very divisionary issue. And unfortunately, maybe you can't trust that Wyoming or Montana or Idaho, you know, wouldn't be swayed by ranchers and their you know, other voting bases that want grizzlies gone. So I think in an ideal world, we would have safeguards in place that, you know, if, if the population reaches this threshold again, boom, the act is triggered, they're back on. But that's just not how things are right now. And I think, you know, the other thing that scientists are very concerned about is that we've come so far, but the populations are still island populations, which means genetically they're not connected, right? We're not seeing breeding between the bears around Glacier and the bears around Yellowstone. And that's really important to the health and longevity of these, these populations moving forward. We need to connect them before we can think about delisting. And they are, they're on the verge of connecting if they remain on the endangered species list. Is that correct? Yeah, they're, they're almost there. I mean, there's only, I think, you know, maybe 50 miles or a bit more separating some of these populations right now. So scientists think naturally we might see the grizzlies rejoin very soon if we keep protections in place. And if we improve our tolerance a little bit, we might, we might see that soon. Now, there's another way in which grizzlies could actually be thriving or could thrive in the future at the expense of another iconic bear, and that's the polar bear. Actually, I've heard that polar bears could have been originally grizzlies and then evolved into polar bears, and that in some way that could come back or the grizzlies would move into their territory. Talk about polar bears and grizzlies and their interconnection. There are winners and losers of climate change for sure. And I think, you know, scientists are kind of pointing to the brown bear or the grizzly bear as being one of those winners. And of course, the polar bear is the poster child of kind of the losers of climate change. But um, you're absolutely right. Uh, polar bears evolved out of brown bears fairly recently in terms of kind of evolutionary terms, probably maybe around 500,000 years ago, a sort of specific group of brown bears headed to the northern seacoast and they slowly evolved into the polar bear that we know and love today. But because of that, it means that polar bears and brown bears are able to interbreed and have fertile offspring. So we are seeing some hybrid bears known as pizzly bears or growler bears already in the Arctic. Scientists think that if this keeps happening, eventually um, we'll see the kind of the, the DNA, the, the brown bear DNA kind of swamp the polar bear DNA and they'll just totally revert to brown bears. And that's also, of course, because brown bears are moving north. We've seen brown bears out on ice flows as climate change warms the Arctic. That's opening up more territory for the brown bear as the polar bear faces the opposite trajectory and as their habitat disappears. <laughs> Pizzly bears, not growler bears. <laughs> I think it's a matter of per personal preference. I personally like the term pizzly bear, uh, but I, I do know some people who vote for the growler bear terminology instead. 
<laughs> and we are talking with Gloria Dickey. She's an environmental journalist and the author of the new book, Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. Now, you went to Peru to check out the spectacled bear that lives in the cloud forest. Talk about the spectacled bear and, you know, the threats that, that they face. Yeah, I hope what people kind of get from this book is that, you know, there are more bears than just maybe the grizzly bears and the black bears that we're familiar with. And that was a real joy to me was to look at some of these lesser known species that don't get that kind of global attention. Um, and so the spectacled bear is a very elusive bear. It's quite shy. It's very, um, it's not very aggressive, so it doesn't really attack people. And it lives in the cloud forests of the Andes, which is this really kind of unique and special ecosystem full of plants growing on top of other plants. And they're all watered by the clouds that float through these, these forests. And so the spectacled bear, you know, it lives in the kind of canopy. It creates little, what some have called nests out of broken branches. It sits up there, it eats, it sleeps. It spends its day very much kind of like out of the way. But unfortunately, much like the polar bear, these bears are also threatened by climate change because climate change is shifting where the clouds and the forest intersect. And so it's kind of drying out a lot of that habitat that the spectacled bear relies upon. And for some reason, they don't seem to like to use the lower elevations, which would be kind of the Amazon area. And, and scientists aren't quite sure what's keeping them out of that, that area, whether it's you know jaguars or other predators that could be in the area. So they're really concerned that these bears will also see, you know, big losses in their habitat by the end of the century. And what kind of work is being done to help them adapt? They're one of the world's like lesser studied bears. So I think, you know, at first it's just getting an idea of how many exist, right? It, some of the baseline information we don't even have, but they're trying to figure out, again, climate change is tricky, right? Because you can't really address it on the ground. You have to stop emissions. So in the meantime, trying to protect things like habitat, trying to reduce threats, other threats like agricultural expansion or mining, especially in places like Ecuador. Um, that's kind of key, at least as, as a stopgap while we figure out this whole, uh, this whole climate change thing. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with Gloria Dickey about bears. Her book is Eight Bears, Mythic Past, and Imperiled Future. Now, the spectacle bear is peaceable, but you also studied an other bear that I'd never heard of before that is quite ferocious. That is the sloth bear of India, kind of misnomer because it has no relationship to the actual sloth. Um, when you went there, you met a young woman named Pinky who was mauled by a sloth bear. One of many, many instances of this happening. First of all, tell us a little bit about the sloth bear and why it is so ferocious. Yeah, Pinky was, as you as you mentioned, was just one of many people that I met across many states in India who'd been attacked by a sloth bear or who had had relatives attacked by a sloth bear. Um so again, yes, most people have never heard of the sloth bear. When you think of a deadly bear, you think of polar bears, you think of brown bears. The sloth bear doesn't really come up in, in idle conversation. But actually, it, it does, if you're looking at the metric of how many people are attacked and killed each year, then the sloth bear reigns supreme. And you know, part of that, of course, is that the sloth bear lives so close 
to millions of people, right? There's lots of people living in kind of rural villages where the, the sloth bear travels through or the people are going into the forest to gather things like mushrooms or flowers um, and firewood, and that's when they're attacked. Uh, but the bear itself is pretty small. It's about 250 pounds. It's very shaggy. It's very messy looking, very long claws. And it also is just kind of a, a very aggressive bear, even without the people that live nearby. Um, some scientists think maybe it's aggressive because it lives with tigers. You know, it has to fight tigers to protect its cubs. And so it's it's very quick to kind of attack. And it doesn't see and, very well either. Yeah, and it also has poor vision. So maybe it can't really determine, you know, it has a good sense of smell, it's snuffling along eating insects, but maybe it can't really tell the difference <laughs> between, you know, a tiger and a, a person out of its kind of peripheral vision. And I think it's it's just, yeah, it's very quick to anger. So unfortunately, a lot of people you know, in these villages have had negative encounters with the bears and, and sometimes, you know, they kill them out of revenge. And that's a concern for conservationists. Yeah. And also I was struck by the contrast between, you know, the terrible cruelty of human beings who in India have, you know, captured and used these bears, tormented these bears um, as dancing bears in in Agra, where the Taj Mahal happens, on the one hand, so that cruelty, and on the other hand, people are growing food for the sloth bears in Gujarat. Yeah, I think we're seeing a bit of a, maybe a sea change. So we are seeing, I mean, most of the dancing bears, which is a long tradition across India and into places like Nepal, a lot of those have been um, rescued and moved to sanctuaries now. And so bear dancing is not not so common. I think there's increasing understanding about conservation and, and the threats facing, you know, many, many different species. And yeah, now we're seeing some of the scientists really championing um, the return of these bears and trying to also, I mean, as, as much as it sounds nice, like they're growing food for the bears, which is nice. But part of that aim is also to try and make sure that the sloth bears needs are being met inside protected areas to prevent the bears from moving beyond these areas and into villages looking for water and food, right? So they want to kind of naturally confine them to wilderness areas to prevent these, these deadly conflicts. You know, India is under the regime of uh, an authoritarian leader who is very, very pro-business, has that had an impact on uh, conservation efforts for the sloth bear in India? Well, Modi is Modi's actually from Gujarat, where we do have uh, a few sloth bear reserves. Uh, and, and he's kind of been very in support, I guess, in some ways of conservation in his home state of Gujarat. But perhaps at a, at a broader level, you know, maybe that's not so much the case. The other issue is also tigers, right? In North America and Canada and the U.S., Bears are kind of like our biggest charismatic animal. And so we, we, we really care about these animals. But in India, like, they've got elephants, they've got tigers, they've got a lot of other species that are vying for conservation dollars and attention. And I think India has put so much effort toward tiger conservation, sometimes at the expense of the sloth bear, where those two, those two overlap, right? So sloth bears don't really want to live with tigers. And um, if you're putting all your money towards making sure that parks are well suited to tigers, maybe you're kind of neglecting the scruffier, less charismatic sloth bear and pushing it out towards uh, villages where it gets into conflicts. Now, in China, 
the panda bear reigns, of course. You spoke with someone who figured out how to breed pandas, something that had been quite elusive uh, previously, and reintroduced them to the wild. This is more of a success story. Tell us that. Yeah, so there are more pandas in captivity today than there are wild pandas. And, you know, that's partially because China has been trying for so long to breed these bears of which they have the monopoly. No other country in the world besides China uh, can lay claim to pandas. And so there's several breeding centers set up across China to try and get these bears to mate in captivity. But what scientists discovered in the 1980s was the bears actually weren't so keen on doing that. And so it took many years for them to figure out how to get the bears to mate. Eventually, they kind of went the, the IVF route, more or less, with pandas. And then the other issue, too, was how to keep the cubs alive in captivity, because often the panda moms would have twins, and she'd kind of abandon one and let the other die. So they began kind of secretly switching them out. People would take care of one of the cubs while one panda was with the mom, and vice versa. They'd switch them around. And so that's kind of led to this breakthrough in, in panda breeding. And on the one hand, people might think, oh, all of these bears are then, you know, being put out into wilderness areas. You know, it's a, you know, a normal captive breeding program that's restocking the wilderness with pandas. We haven't so much seen that yet. China is hoping to do that. We've seen about a dozen or so bears be released into the wild in recent years. They've struggled with how do these bears that have only ever known, you know, kind of a contained environment survive in the wild. You know, they've fallen off cliffs or been you know, attacked by other animals in some cases. And so they're, they're having to train these bears to kind of get those natural survival instincts. But moreover, we've seen a lot of these bears that have been bred in captivity used more so as a diplomatic bargaining tool or kind of as, as envoys of, of diplomacy given to zoos that, you know, China has brokered good trade deals with, they have a good relationship with. And at the same time, when sometimes those relationships deteriorate, as we saw um, after Obama visited with the Dalai Lama, China called some of those pandas that were in the National Zoo in D.C. back home very shortly after. Yeah. So finally, Gloria Dickey, why is it important for humans to learn to live with bears? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I think it's, you know, kind of, I guess, at the heart of the book, you know, there's, of course, there's the kind of intrinsic value argument, as you know, a lot of people will try and make is that these bears have accompanied us across the world for so long, like, as much as we expanded across the world, bears often followed very similar pathways. And they've kind of been in some ways, a, a relative to us in, in this world. And I think our stories are the richer for it. And the woods are richer for it as well. And I think losing Losing bears would mean that we lose this very complex and unique relationship that we don't have with, with other animals. And, you know, I'm sure there's always arguments to be made, I guess, about you know, ecological services and other things like that that bears might provide. But I think fundamentally, it's, it's just so deeply entrenched in our culture that I think it would be a real tragic loss if some of these bears were to, to go extinct. I agree. Well, Gloria Dickey, your book is a great read, Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. Thanks so much for talking with us here. Thank you so much for your interest in bears. Gloria Dickey, go to writersvoice.net to read or listen to an excerpt from Eight Bears. Next up, wolves. Don't go away. <laughs> Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content, including web-only features like interview transcripts and extended interviews.
And please spread the word about Writer's Voice. Follow us on X, Instagram, and Facebook. From bears to wolves. Wolves have long played a fearsome role in the mind of humanity, the big bad wolf. Yet all dogs, man's best friend, are descended from the wolf. And wolves are more like us than perhaps any other animal, except our fellow great apes. Sonia Swift's book, Echo Loba, Loba Echo, delves into the profound metaphor and reality of the wolf, wolf as guide versus wolf as enemy, the crucial role of wolves in maintaining healthy ecosystems, and the conflicts between people and wolves that imperil the existence of this magnificent species. Swift also draws a parallel between the persecution of wolves and common tropes that have been used to subjugate women, where the big bad wolf morphs into evil woman. Through essays and poems in Echo Loba, Loba Echo, Swift reminds us that when we seek to eradicate what we fear, we end up destroying our profound, life-sustaining connection with the creatures with whom we share this earth. Sonia Swift is a writer and poet who co-directs Windrose Fund of Common Council Foundation and is board chair of the Community Agroecology Network. Sonia Swift, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. This wonderful book, Echo Loba, Loba Echo, um, first, just say a little bit about this title. Loba, of course, is referring to the the female wolf, she-wolf, and there's undercurrents of that in the story. And echo, it's just a word that came echoing as if in a way mirroring, but like there's messages here that I feel like are echoing around and and that there's this theme of how do we see ourselves in the wolf. The repetitive nature, I think there was something beautiful to that patterning. But no, titles are interesting when you when you finally land on one and hold it. It just it comes of its own accord, too. And the subtitle is Of Wisdom, Wolves, and Women. Why the focus on the connection between wolves and women? And say a little bit about that connection. There's a lot of ways the, the wolf has been in place of women. Lupa, for instance, the word lupa, meaning wolf, but also whore. There's derogatory ways that wolf has been treated and kind of referred to like women. And then there's just deeper themes here that that have a kind of feminist bent, I guess you could say. But I wasn't exactly trying to make it explicit in the subtitle, but it kind of rose up that way at the end, like it needed to be named. The description of the book on the website is a unique look at the cultural, environmental, historical, literary, metaphorical, and political role of the wolf. I think that just about covers it. And it's a fascinating fabric that you weave between these different aspects of the relationship between people and wolves and also a tapestry that's made up of different genres as well. Just kind of let our listeners know a little bit about this uh, multi-patterned weave that you make, both with language, genre, and topic. It kind of was, there was a sense that it needed to to be a weaving and a, a, an approach 
to naming the wolf in ways that are multidimensional and the meanings and the, un the undercurrents and the associations and projections because it's very complicated. Um, people project a lot onto wolves and there's also just so many different ancient understandings of relationships with wolves, but much of that has been also um, eradicated like the wolf by kind of dominant forces. And I, I write poetry. I also, you know, write essays and something about the poetics, the poetic nature of, of speaking to this felt really critical. Also just the, the myriad subjects of which are, are heavy and laden and, dealing with, you know, environmental catastrophe and whatnot, like how to speak to that in a way that isn't just deadening and another fact and another sort of burden to, to bear. I tried to make this lyrical to speak to the kind of heart of the matter, I suppose. It is maybe it's a, the way I think, I, I think in kind of multidimensional ways. And, and I, I was really trying to, to show the tapestry of, of themes that, that this is, the book has poems interspersed right which wasn't even something I intended or expected at the beginning uh, they kind of found their way in there so it was an interesting process pulling this together it had kind of a life of its own. The foreword to this book is by Winona LaDuke she is a great leader I would say of the indigenous peoples of of the United States as well as, you know, her own, she's Ojibwa, is that correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a beautiful forward, and she says she has a, a special connection to wolves. You'll have to correct my pronunciation. Uh, she, the name for wolf is Maingani, is that right? Yeah, Maingan, yeah. And she tells how, um, what happens to the wolf, she says, is what well in this case she's talking about the Ashanabi. She tells how the Ashanabi say what happens to the wolf happens to the Ashanabi. And it struck me that this is really the frame of the book. What happens to the wolf is what happens to us. Yeah, definitely. It, it's true. It's an old wisdom that the Anishinaabe have known for for a long, long time and have tried to communicate to the settlers here. And it is very much echoed in these pages. And, you know, I've known Winona for a while. She's a dear friend and she wrote such a beautiful forward. It's really gracious of her. And and she was really the perfect person too because in some ways this book kind of came into being just when I was on a road trip with my husband years back and we stopped by to visit her um, at White Earth and met up with her friend and colleague Bob who's referenced in the book and you know I was I had been reading a Barry Lopez book at the time and was just mentioning that the the book the the of wolves and men the kind of classic by Barry Lopez and Winona was just like oh if you want to talk about wolves you should talk to Bob and he shared some stories and and which are in in the book it was a cool conversation and and yet it was there uh, when I learned the translation, right, the meaning of Maingan, which is wolf, but it's also the one sent here by that all-loving spirit to show us the way. And so here is really this description of wolf as guide, and, and even deeper than that, but it just really sent me on a track of like, 
thinking about that in a deep way and also just resonating with that. Somehow that made sense to me. So say more about this notion of the wolf as a guide and maybe start out by mentioning you wrote this book for your son and you say in the book that the idea of wolves as guides took on new meaning for you when you became a mother. So maybe we could start there but also elaborate in other ways too, on how wolves are guides? Well, it actually shows up in a lot of cultural traditions kind of around the world. And I mean, we have such a deep relationship to wolves, like we've lived alongside them for thousands and thousands of years and, and peaceably. And there's just so many different kinds of stories, again, many of which are woven into the, to the book. For instance, you know, settlers coming to North America, the, the Europeans took the wolves on as enemies for a period of time. Not every European, but like, you know, there was a real just extermination attempt that happened. And so there were settlers coming here to North America who really actually didn't even have any memory of living alongside wolves and had these fear stories and these narratives. And arriving here, there, there was actually also no rabies in North America. So there there was just nothing in terms of fear with wolves and people until they were slaughtered again based on kind of these projections as far as being mother and this sort of the um, wolf as guide you know there's also just some fascinating stories about wolves taking care of children which are pretty amazing and and then just wolves themselves as mothers are fiercely protective and just something about being so deep in this content and in, in this relating to this being just the depth one one puts I mean for myself at least like I spend years with this this material and thinking and it became a part of my life and so yeah it was on my mind when I you know gave birth to my firstborn and just felt a resonance and protectiveness and kind of this theme too, I guess, of just like, how am I going to guide him through this world, which is really being ransacked, right, in so many ways. Yes, in fact, ransacked. I mean, they're the most persecuted animals in the world, you say in the book. And then I thought, well, maybe coyotes fit that bill as well. It's so interesting that so-called man's best friend is descended from the wolf, and yet wolves have been cast, at least in the West, as so evil, you know, the big bad wolf. Why this disconnect? That's the kind of the question. It goes so deep. Like, why are wolves so hated was a big question I sat with. Like, what is this about, really? Because it actually has nothing to do with danger. They're not dangerous. Like, rabies, yes, is a problem. You can also get rabies from other animals, and they go crazy. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. Maybe two people have been killed by wolves and in the past, I don't know how many years. And they were both totally these kind of anomalous circumstances. So so the point is, like, there's there's a deeper issue. There's a deeper narrative. There's a story, you know, and there's a lot of stories and there's a lot of associations. And those are the things I really try to unpack. And I think it also just speaks to the, the old relationship between people and wolves. There's something deep here, both in positive and, and negative ways. And I think there's there's a lot of just not wanting to face oneself, perhaps, one's own, the human condition, the human mind, so it's projected onto others, to other animals. Um, but the wolf, really, it really falls heavy, heavy on their shoulders. 
And for native people too, of, there's associations that are made between wolves and Anishinaabe wolves and other, you know, and Tibetans. I mean, there, there's these Mongolians. Um, I get into some of that where it's, it's imperial forces that are trying to steal land and push certain people and beings aside. I wonder also if it's because we have a relationship of dominance over dogs, we control dogs, but we can't control wolves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely control issues at at play here too. I, I agree. And this is in relationship to something else, but you cite demonstrations in Turkey to protect a beloved park, a, a tree. I mean, I think people were killed as a result. And you write that people are being killed for loving places others have forgotten how to love because to stand up for what you love is a threat to the mediocrity of those in control. Control mm-hmm. that begets fear, which begets forgetting what we know. Say more about that. Yeah, that's a core reflection in this narrative, in this book. I see it played out, play out in a lot of a lot of places. It's a tragedy. And um, I think it's also tied to some of my critiques about the kind of dominant conservation industry that's very well funded um, or environmental, the largest, you know, ENGOs, environmental NGOs, and which are very money driven and finance driven and kind of continue to promote their idea of how to protect places, which is actually very much woven into serving up what it, what corporations want um, to kind of further their agendas. It's a, it's this detachment and and a lack of being willing to imagine other ways of being and other ways of thinking, and then actually embody them. And I think that's one of the challenges kind of offered in the book. One which I've chosen to take on in my own life, like welcoming thinking differently and and expanding my perception and reconsidering, you know, things I was taught. Um, I just feel like that's what's required of us these days because this repetitiveness of pretty much old colonial frameworks is is very much ongoing and it's a huge distraction. It's a danger. We really just don't have room for that. Like things are very extreme. They're becoming ever more extreme in the sense of losses that continue. Like we must reckon with this, you know, like we must and and love the love of one's land the, like being guided by that is very powerful indeed this is writer's voice and i'm francesca riannon we're talking about wolves with sonia swift her book is echo loba loba echo of wisdom wolves and women let's talk about wolf culture i thought this was so interesting and this is kind of in that frame of things of what wolves can teach us. Uh, You say when it comes to wolves, it's not about the numbers of wolves. I mean, there you're talking about conservation. It's about family. What do you mean by that? And and what, what are the implications of that for saving wolf populations? Yeah, they have such culture. The pack culture, the leader, you know, passing on wisdom, the older wolves playing a role, having knowledge of, it's just quite profound. And so, I mean, as far as like healthy packs are concerned, where there's a healthy pack, it's extremely disruptive when the kind of like see a wolf, kill a wolf mentality comes about and just like takes out whole packs that are functioning 
well that are not necessarily going after some rancher sheep or cows or whatever. Um, I'm just trying to speak to some of these people trying to figure out how, how are we going to live alongside, you know, each other. There's so much pushback, right, on like wolves being around and people just kind of want to just get their guns and shoot them. And aside from just the deeper reasons, I mean, when you have the, when you disrupt a pack like that and suddenly you have young ones trying to figure out how to live, they're going to be more prone to go after somebody's calf or cow or you know they're they're going to be confused I mean that that's kind of what I'm saying like it, it disrupts the flow of things but as far as just the culture of wolves and the way they teach and play and relate to one another I mean it's fascinating and there's there's so many books out there written about it I just really wanted to highlight the the culture I, I feel like that's a very apt word to use and I I just really stand by that yeah, and you know, I remember I went to Yellowstone National Park. I remember in the '90s, actually, I took my son with me when he was a kid, and I remember the signs, you know, about bringing the wolves back. And I signed petitions, and then you know, fast forward probably 20 years, and I took my my granddaughter, who was you know then about the same age as when I took my son. And the wolves had come back, and Yellowstone had been transformed. It was a much healthier ecosystem because of the wolf. And I was surprised. I didn't realize that wolves have lost their endangered species protection now. Uh, what you know, there are all sorts of issues around hunting wolves in Montana and Idaho. Could you talk about that situation and and what is being done to protect the wolf? I just see it always going back and forth. It remains a very polarized situation. It's always kind of falling back and forth. You have tribes giving, you know, sanctuary to wolves and saying like, you know, there will be no hunting here. And then you have people changing laws to make, like hunting with dogs, for instance, which happened in Wisconsin um, in recent years, creating such a unequal playing field where just like hundreds of wolves are killed in a matter of days and and that's the bigger piece here you have these same tensions going on in Europe as well the wolves are coming back and then people freak out and others are happy and how to figure it out I mean we we have to find some kind of resolve here over time and I took it on really just to speak to that that tension to try to understand it a little bit in a, in a kind of deeper way but it, it remains. And yeah, there's many organizations, there's tribal efforts, there's people are doing what they can and power and politics and money, you know, and certain interests can swing things back again. And a lot is lost along the way. It remains hanging in the balance. And yet they are coming back in some places. And one of the places they're coming back is Chernobyl. People have been banished from Chernobyl. And the wildlife has come in to, to fill that space. And it's interesting because they are thriving there. Talk a little bit about that situation and the fact that in spite of being irradiated, they seem to be thriving. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's them and the catfish and the, you know, wild horses and all the rest of it. But yet, you know, if a, as human researcher, so this has been going on for quite some years now, trying to study and understand this and keep track of things. If, if they were to, for instance, swallow a single wolf hair, they would die. I mean, the radiation is, is real. 
And it's kind of a mis- mystery to me. And, and it speaks to life post, you know, all of our horrendous messes. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how we're going to be dealing with the plastics pollution, which, you know, is, is killing many animals, especially ocean creatures right now. But yeah, the wolves are are thriving. Of course, it, it's it's a concern if they, you know, start breeding into with other packs across Europe and, you know, what could that all mean? And But they're there, they're living. And they're breeding. You say that it, it proves that we can't kill the planet, but neither can we save it. What do you mean by yeah. that? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of arrogance in the save the world rhetoric, and especially when it comes from people who are, pushing agendas that actually end up just perpetuating the same old economic structures, which is what a lot of, for instance, like the, you know, carbon markets, the carbon market schemes that are pushed by a lot of these really large environmental organizations as, as if that's the only thing we can do. You know, I'm speaking to that. I'm speaking to arrogance and just trying to keep the perspective of ourselves as part of, as interwoven, as, you know, interrelated, relating with, with the other beings that live on this planet. There's more wisdom in, in those approaches and those perspectives from what, what I have experienced in, in my life and the people I've met and who I have, you know, seen to speak with, you know, coherency and clarity and who are actually, you know, protecting their homelands. Um, there's a deeper sentiment than saving that guides that. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, Sonia Swift, I wonder if we can go out on one of the poems. Do you have the book with you? I do, yeah. So on page 216, 216, there is a poem, Centerpoint, a really beautiful poem that really kind of sums up what we've been talking about. Yeah, would you just like me to read it? Yes, I would. Okay, Centerpoint. On this day, in the center of this universe, walk across sagebrush flats into Arroyo, past the open pit coal mine and truck stop with that lightning cracked cottonwood, follow the sound of howl toward calving grounds, the air salted, clouds braid and unbraid, carve rivers into canyons, explode. Sonia Swift, it was just a beautiful book to read, Echo Loba, Loba Echo of Wisdom, Wolves, and Women. Thank you so much for talking with us here about it. Thank you. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We have just a few minutes left, and longtime listeners know what that means, poems. We've got two short ones for today, one about a wolf, the other about a bear. First up is Native American poet Mary Tallmountain's poem, The Last Wolf. It paints a haunting picture of a wolf in a post-apocalyptic San Francisco. The Last Wolf The last wolf hurried toward me through the ruined city, and I heard his baying echoes down the steep-smashed warrens of Montgomery Street and past the ruby-crowned high-rises left standing, their lighted elevators useless. Passing the flicking red and green of traffic signals, baying his way eastward in the mystery of his wild, loping gait, closer the sounds in the deadly night, through clutter and rubble of quiet blocks, 
I hear his voice ascending the hill, and at last his low whine as he came floor by empty floor to the room where I sat in my narrow bed looking west. Waiting, I heard him snuffle at the door, and I watched. He trotted across the floor. He laid his long gray muzzle on the spare white spread, and his eyes burned yellow. His small dotted eyebrows quivered. Yes, I said, I know what they have done. That was The Last Wolf by Mary Tall Mountain, a native Alaskan writer and elder who lived for many years in San Francisco. And now let's turn, as always when looking for a poem about wildness, to Mary Oliver. Here's her poem, Spring. Somewhere a black bear has just risen from sleep and is staring down the mountain. All night in the brisk and shallow restlessness of early spring, I think of her, her four black fists flicking the gravel, her tongue like a red fire touching the grass, the cold water. There is only one question, how to love this world. I think of her rising like a black and leafy ledge to sharpen her claws against the silence of the trees. Whatever else my life is, with its poems and its music and its glass cities, it is also this dazzling darkness coming down the mountain, breathing and tasting. All day I think of her, her white teeth, her wordlessness, her perfect love. That was Mary Oliver's poem, Spring. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. <laughs>